Our scripture reading this morning is taken from two references. The first is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the, people, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The second passage is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Morning. Holy week. Uh, this is a week filled with a lot of emotion and a lot of meaning. But today we celebrate Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, waving the branches as we've already done, and singing of praises, which we've done and, and continue to do. Thursday, uh, we'll remember the significance of the Last Supper and the Passover meal, which Wes read uh, from, from Matthew. And then Friday, we suffer through Good Friday, Jesus' trial, crucifixion. And then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, 
we'll celebrate anew uh, the wonderful resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and his victory over death. But, but this week, along with many weeks that we encounter, sometimes can become a whirlwind. We get caught up in the week, the day. And, and we get busy. Our, our lives focus on other things. And we wake up next Sunday morning and it's like, oh my goodness, it's Easter morning. And I haven't thought about anything the entire week. And so I'm hoping to provide a bit of a breath and a challenge. And Karen even kind of referred to a couple of that things or those things earlier. Just reflecting as we go through the week. What the week means as it relates to the grace that God has extended to us. And not just this week, not just today, tomorrow, but every, every day of our lives. In, in preparation for today, I ran across an article and a reflection that was titled Holy Week, The Redemptive Value of Suffering, that was written back in 1969 by uh, a Catholic priest, Chester Paul Michael. And he, he wrote this. So the primary purpose of Holy Week is to put us into the proper mode the proper mood and frame of mind to appreciate the high price Jesus Christ paid for our redemption from sin and our salvation by grace. The intention of the church is that Holy Week should be a time of retreat for all Christians, a time to meditate and reflect upon the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a time to make application of this mystery of resurrection through suffering and death. So our redemption, our salvation, offered by forgiveness and grace through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. So I want to refer to kind of three, three thoughts. One, this idea of blood sacrifice. Second one, what, what does forgiveness, true forgiveness mean as we accept that? And then finally, grace. So first of all, the, the process of sacrifice in the Old Testament covenant that God had set up and enacted with the Israelites, blood from a sacrificed animal was important and vital. The passage that Wes read in, in uh, Hebrews 9.22 says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And if you go back to Leviticus 17.11 in the Old Testament, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Leviticus 4 uh, gives details of how the sin offering was to be conducted and, and offered. And at the end of Leviticus 4, in verse 35, just the Part B, here's the result of that. said, in this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. And so, so right from the beginning, the, the sacrifice of the animal, the spilling and covering with blood from a sinless, innocent animal provided temporary covering of sins for God's people. And the blood of the animal had provided life for the animal. And without blood, creatures, humans, we, we, we can't live. And so that animal 
was being asked to give up its life. And, and that process, in the Old Testament, that process was not taken lightly. Every time that blood was shed in the process of animal sacrifice, it was a reminder for the people of just that process of life and death. And if you go back to the Passover, the first Passover event in Egypt, and uh, Dawn and I actually watched the Ten Commandments last night. It was on ABC. Um, and and that's, that's always a strong part of what I can remember from growing up in that movie is the blood on the door. It was the blood of a pure lamb spread upon the doorway of the Israelites that provided safety from death for the firstborn that occurred that night. The lamb's life that was taken in Egypt so the firstborn could be spared. That, that was sacrificial blood. And so blood represents life being both taken but then also given. Um, the second part of that, the, the blood sacrifice of an animal also represented a cost. Obviously the cost of life for the animal, but also for the individual that was giving up the animal to be killed and sacrificed. And whether that was an animal that was purchased or it was selected from an individual's own flock, there was a cost. So there was a monetary cost. But, but also, in many cases, the animal that was sacrificed would have been treated as part of the family for an extended amount of time. And so there would also be an emotional pain and loss in that sacrifice as well. So that blood sacrifice was a reminder of the pain and cost of sin has on our life. There's repercussions. And the third part of this also then is just the process of God instituting the blood sacrifice system in the Old Testament was foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross so that it could be understood. His sacrifice of blood to cover our sins. In Isaiah 53.7 we read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Exodus 12.5 says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. And so all of that was foreshadowing Jesus Christ and his perfection and when when the disciples had a chance to continue to reflect and understand the references between the old testament scriptures and jesus life they they wrote about it uh first peter 1 18 and 19 peter writes knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The disciples understood that and they passed that along. They connected that blood sacrifice from the Old Testament law to what was now necessary for salvation, for eternal life in the new covenant. Second part that I want to refer to is this idea of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness of our sins is not something that we earn. It's not about our good deeds. It's not about who we are. But forgiveness is freely given as we ask God and we repent. 
1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In Ephesians 1.7, additionally, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So he will forgive us our sins. God's riches contain grace, and, and we sing amazing grace in our songs. But, but there can be some danger, a bit of misunderstanding that occurs with that freedom of forgiveness. There can be abuse if, if the scriptures are misrepresented, misread. Christian music group, We the Kingdom, sing a song called Holy Water. And part of the lyrics in that song say, I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it, your grace. I need it every day. But the phrase, I don't want to abuse your grace. It, and it's recognizing that I fail daily and it's recognition that I need God's grace every day. But what, what caught my ears the first time I heard that song was just that phrase at the beginning of that, I don't want to abuse your grace. And I think, okay, what, what does that mean? How can grace be abused? How can forgiveness be abused? Um, and, and Paul wrote about this, because obviously it's not just something that's, you know, a current song issue. It was written back in, in Romans 5.20 to 6.2. Paul wrote this, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if there's trespasses, well, the grace of God is even more powerful for that. For that. But then, then Paul asked this, well, so, so then what do we say? It's a good thing to go on sinning because then we can get forgiveness because the experience of God's forgiveness is a wonderful, free truth. Powerful, eternal, it's a loving truth. And so in misrepresenting this, therefore, it's possible for some individuals to start thinking, well, if I want to experience the love and forgiveness of God, then I need to go out and sin some more. And then I can experience that forgiveness and then I need to go out and sin again. And then I can you know, experience that forgiveness. Well, no. <laughs> Paul's response at the end of verse 2 says, by no means. And in today's language, I would say, kind of like the statement, you got to be kidding. And some of your heads were shaking. Yeah, you were saying, no, that's not correct. But there are individuals that have been misguided with that. Um, Gregory Rasputin was a self-proclaimed mystic and holy man from Russia back in uh, the early 1900s. He, he was born in 1869, died in 1916. Uh, he did perform some healings, had a large following. And in a sermon, he made this statement, salvation is in God. You can't take a step without God. And then went on with some more. And that, that sounds good. That sounds appropriate, right? Well, but 
but from the Enduring Word website, I read a little bit more of this guy, Rasputin. That Rasputin believed that since those who sin the most require the most forgiveness, therefore a sinner who continues to sin without constraint enjoys, enjoys more of God's grace than the ordinary sinner. Therefore, Rasputin lived in notorious sin and taught that this was the way to salvation. And Rasputin not only taught it, he lived it. He intentionally committed sexually sins rampantly, among other sins, and encouraged others to join in. And I got to believe Paul's statement would be yelling back at him by no means. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. So abuse of God's word, abuse of forgiveness has been around since Paul's time. Paul was addressing it. And it still exists today. The idea of forgiveness is not a process that we just continue in sin. Part of the process of forgiveness involves being changed, repenting, asking for forgiveness, being changed by the weight of sin that was over us but no longer is. But there's a change. Will we still make mistakes? Yes, most, most assuredly we will. But to intentionally let sin in our lives, big or small, however you want to label you know, big or small, that's nowhere near God's call. Romans 6.2 kind of finishes Paul's statement here. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So, so the idea of forgiveness, and, and going back to the phrase of, of holy water, the song, it's the only thing that makes me want to change. Forgiveness is given to us, but it's a sincere repentance from our sins that provides a new and energized relationship, a desire to be closer to God. And I want to read 1 John 1, 9 again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we, we confess our sins, but we don't return to those. Repenting is a process of turning in a different direction. True repentance involves a willingness, an intention to change and follow God's will in our life. That's when we reap the full benefit of forgiveness, that relationship with Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 4-6, Paul writes, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the, the work's not complete. But the result is not all on our shoulders. We need to be prepared to commit to his will, to his working. But the final work is him working in and through us. The purification is his work in our hearts. But it starts with accepting his forgiveness over any sin. But it, it's a commitment of changing with that forgiveness. And the third and the last part I want to refer to goes to this idea of renewed grace and what grace really means. And the example 
of grace that Christ has given us and then how we're to be extending that to others. Um, as I go through some of this, I, this week of Holy Week is an incredible week of grace that Jesus Christ was giving to us. Apostle John wrote in John 1, 14 and in 16, said the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already, uh, already given. Grace renewed, that, that idea of grace received in place of grace. Grace upon grace, over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, the blood sacrifice was understood to cover the sins of the people. And when Jesus came and offered his life, the pouring out of his blood on the cross, the perfect sacrifice had been made. It was a new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood. That was here. Not just temporary anymore, but a permanent covering of sin. So when, when did that grace begin? That, that was forgiveness, but when did that grace begin? And I believe that grace started a long time before Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead. Because Jesus was intentionally sacrificed. He sacrificed himself for us. He knew at the beginning of Holy Week what Friday would hold. Part of the litany kind of makes a bit of a connection to that. He knew, Jesus Christ knew, that many on Palm Sunday who were waving those branches, praising his name, many of those individuals could be the individuals yelling, crucify him on Friday. He also knew that Peter was going to commit his denial before the rooster crowed. He knew that Judas had already betrayed him. And that just needed to be played out. And yet Jesus proceeded through the week as he was called by God. I have to you know, think about this. We, we call this Holy Week. But for Jesus, was this a bittersweet week? He knew of those betrayals. He knew of the pain and the suffering that he was going to be enduring. And he willing went, willingly went through that suffering. He became the Passover lamb for the entire world. So the blood of Christ sealed the work. But that grace was started before that. Grace was laid out through the entire week with Jesus taking one more step through the week. And grace is what God offers us to, today to live under that grace, to extend that to others. But we experience that grace for eternity. Um, when, when eating the Passover meal with his disciples, and Wes read this, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And those words, this is my body, this is my blood, those words would not have been part of the normal Passover ritual. 
And I have to believe that the disciples kind of heard that a little bit. Their ears would have perked up. Like, okay, he just said something a little bit different. Just the way that my ears perked up when, when I heard that, that phrase from the song, I don't want to abuse your grace. I got to believe that the disciples heard something a little bit different. And at that moment, may not have necessarily fully understood, okay, what does that mean? But I have to think that later on, after Jesus had passed away and ascended to heaven, and the disciples were in the middle of their ministry, did they think back to that night and begin to realize more strongly what when Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, what commitment had Jesus already made throughout that entire week? What grace was he in the middle of providing for them and the world in the middle of that week? Did it strengthen their faith? Did it strengthen their devotion as they began their ministries or they continued their ministries claiming more powerfully who Jesus Christ was? And I've got to believe it did. Verse 30 of what Wes read closed the scripture with this statement. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and the Passover meal traditionally ended with the singing of some psalms. And Psalms 116, 117, 118 were generally involved with a lot of this. And so I want to read early in that set of verses. Psalm 116, verses 3 and 4 says this. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And so if that would have been part of what Jesus sang as a hymn, then extending that through the rest of the evening, later in Matthew 26, we read of Jesus praying and sweating blood in the garden and saying, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So those words from Psalm 116 that Jesus sang with his disciples, was that a challenge for Christ to be singing those? Was that a comfort? Was it an affirmation? Because Christ was saying, Lord, deliver my soul. I have to believe, I mean, that touched him, knowing what he was going to be going through. And Psalm 118, the end of that, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So ending that hymn, claiming and praising God's goodness, his love, his faithfulness. Charles Spurgeon reflected upon Jesus last night in this way. He says, if, beloved, you knew that at, say, 10 o'clock tonight, you would be led away to be mocked and despised and scourged, and that tomorrow's sun, tomorrow's sunrise, would see you falsely accused hanging a convicted criminal to die upon a cross, 
Do you think that you could sing tonight after your last meal? Because that's what Jesus did. Throughout Jesus' entire ministry, three years' time, I believe he knew what this last week was going to be holding. He knew that he was a Passover lamb from the very beginning. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be ridiculed. He knew that he was going to be beaten, scourged. He knew that his blood was going to be spilled for us. And he knew he was going to die. He knew he was covering sins for this entire world in a lifetime. And he also knew that he would be let down by his disciples and in the future by me, by us. But even in the middle of Holy Week and all the way through there, Jesus Christ ministered to those who would listen. Even those, again, that he knew would betray and deny him with love and grace and forgiveness. When we sing about amazing grace, that's amazing grace. And as Christ gave that and offered that to us, May we prepare our hearts to offer that to each other and to individuals that we meet day after day after day. Pass along that amazing grace and that marvelous grace of Jesus Christ.